so excited you decided to take the time to listen to Creative Talk. My name is Eric Humphrey, and on this podcast, I get the chance to speak with some of the most interesting, inspiring people I've worked with and been mentored by. I hope you enjoy. Really excited to be here with Daryl Butler. I've known Daryl for about four years. We're frat brothers, and one of my other frat brothers introduced me to him four years ago, and we've been able to meet a bunch of times. He's given me insight on the industry. Uh, He has so much experience from working at Nike to now Beast by Dre, running Global Brand, and I'm just happy to have him here today. Thanks for having me, brother. (laughs) So can, I want to start off. Can you just give me some background on how you got into marketing? Yeah, well, uh, pretty circuitous route for me. Uh, when I came out of Morehouse, I had two degrees, one in finance, one in marketing. And I ended up going the finance route. So I was a numbers dude for about eight, ten years. Uh, financial planning and analysis, budgeting, forecasting, basically corporate banking type stuff. Oh, wow. And um yeah, about ten years of that, and uh, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Literally, it was I was it was a Friday night. I was in the office. Lights are out. Nothing's on but the light in my office, and I'm signing commission checks for sales associates. Uh, this is the time I was at Nextel, so that tells you how long this was. Nextel. Were you in Atlanta at the time? No, I was still in LA. Oh, okay, um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm signing these big checks for a lot of these sales folks, and I'm thinking to myself. Ain't no salespeople in this office right now on a Friday night, so I must be doing something wrong. You know, this scorekeeping thing ain't, ain't really, you know, what it's cracked up to be. Because um, I'd always thought I was on this track to be a CFO and all that kind of thing. And uh, so that, that, you know, Friday comes and goes. That Monday, I walked into my boss's office and said I wanted to be a sales guy. And he looked at me kind of like a, you know, inquisitive dog, head tilted to the side kind of thing. Like, what? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm looking at... You know, I know the business. I'm looking at my sales, my sales com- compatriots. You know, they're doing really great things. I want to give my shot. And he, you know, all right, let's see if we can work it out. So I actually moved from finance to sales, and I carried it back for about six years. Ended up doing corporate account sales. I had you know clients like Coca-Cola and American Express, a few other pretty big clients around the country. Which you know, so I had a great deal of success. Yeah, you know, you know selling. <clears throat> But uh, anybody that knows sales knows that it's a grind. You it know? is. Every 30 days, you start over <laughs> again, right? What have you done for me lately? Uh, so I hopped off that treadmill about six years in. And at the time, Boost Mobile was really just kind of kicking in. Yep. And I was watching out the side of my eye because they were a joint venture with Nextel. And um, the guy that was my boss at Nextel at the time, at, at one time, ended up being the general manager for Boost. So I was, you know, watching, they're doing a lot of surf events, a lot of skate events, all that kind of thing. But they were talking about being a national brand. And I said to myself, well, at the time, now we're talking, you know, early 2000s, when nobody's skateboarding in the south of, you know, south side of Chicago. I know, nope. You ain't surfing in D.C. <laughs> so if you're going to be reg- relevant nationally, you're going to have to find a way to diversify and, you know, find other passion points for young people. So I literally just took the time and I wrote a business plan just on the strength. And I asked for, you know, half an hour with uh, with Don Gerskis, the general manager at the time. And I sent him, you know, it's like, I got this idea. Let me know what you think. And so what made you even decide to write that business plan? Like, what was this? You know, I had this pent up, you know, interest in, you know, taking, putting my, you know, marketing chops to work. And I just didn't know exactly how to do it. You know, I wasn't a fan of the traditional Procter & Gamble route or the, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I never really tried to be a classically trained marketer, so to speak. But I looked at, you know, what does a consumer react to? What are the, what's the psychology of, a, of somebody that wants to buy? And, you know, I saw disconnects between what brands were saying and doing and what consumers were asking for. And it just, you know, it's always triggered with me because, I, you know, I look at the world through the lens of a consumer. I yep. always have. Um, and, you know, I said, if I'm going to, you know, try to be a marketer, you know, I think I got ideas around how to really create connections. 
And, you know, Boost at the time was, you know, a little bit of a darling. It was a startup. But, you know, I had a guy that, you know, I was going to get a chance to have my fingers in a lot of the, a lot of soup. And so, I, you know, I, I, like I said, I wrote the plan and, you know, I sent it to him. He called me in for a meeting about, call it three days later. He said, this is pretty interesting. Uh, do you think you can execute it? And at the time, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> this is theory from a book, bro, but uh, I can give it a shot, you know, in my head. Of course, I was feeling pretty confident about taking a run at it, and he gave me a shot. Um, so, you know, you fast forward 12 years into my career, and I made another pivot and ended up being a marketer. Um, and I started off with event marketing. I got into PR, started doing some some low-level brand work. And, you know, I really made a name for myself, quite frankly, in the marketing world at Boost, you know, circa 2000, somewhere around there, 2002. Um, and I really took up, you know, that became a passion of mine, you know, storytelling, uh, creating connections with consumers. Boost was about being irreverent. Boost was about being youthful. It was about tapping into the zeitgeist of young youth culture, you know, fashion, sport, you know, action sports, but also mainstream sports. You know, street basketball back in the day and one, you know, mixtape tour type stuff. Oh, wow. And and that's really what I spent a lot of time developing. We did uh, concerts with young people where we would actually invite them to come out and do volunteer work. And in exchange, they get a chance to go to a concert. You know, so you got young people from all over the inner cities of New York and Chicago showing up at, you know, the Troubadour or um, Fox Theater in Atlanta or... What's the joint in New York uh, where the rock the Rockets do their thing? Um, uh, Radio City Music Radio Hall. Radio City, yeah. Yeah. You know, we took over Radio City Music Hall in New York and had kids from as far as Red Hook coming into, into the city to hear Fat Joe and Kanye and the game, you know. So, you know, really just kind of flipped the script on what wireless as an industry really meant. Um, had a great deal of success there. Nike came calling because they were like, kind of like what you're doing over there, you know, what you got for us. And, um, you know, for me as a sports guy, you know, playing ball, all that kind of thing, the opportunity was like, okay, that's like uh, Nirvana, Holy Grail type stuff. Get a chance to be a marketer and be in the sports world. Uh, so I didn't think twice. Um, I made the transition over to Nike. I ran brand for the Western region for about three years. And then Jordan called. And at the time, I was pretty good friends with a guy named Keith Hulamar, who also was frat. And he, at the time, was running uh, the Jordan brand um, as the GM president of the brand. And he said, you want to come up and work on, on the brand team with, uh, with Jordan? Now, if Nike is the holy grail, you know, this is, you know, the streets paved with gold now. Because yes. now I'm working, <laughs> you know, on the Jordan brand. And a bit of a sneakerhead myself, you know, it was like, that was a no-brainer. So I made the move, moved up to Portland and ran that brand for a couple of years. And it was fantastic, you know. But, you know, Portland is, well, it's Portland. You know, <laughs> a lot different than LA. A lot different than LA. So about two years into the game, I made a, made a decision that I wanted to get back to LA. Came back here, started my own consultancy. And for me, it was about, let me try my hand at my own point of view. Um, not do it for someone else. So, you know, if you think about it, work with Boost, you're doing marketing for Boost. You work with Nike, you're doing Nike, you know, marketing for Nike. But I said to myself, if I have a point of view, let me see if my my point of view is, if I can monetize that. And uh, I started hunting, you know, um, and I landed some pretty cool clients that really wanted um, that consumer packaged goods point of view, but that edge, you know, left and right of center, and I really started doing a lot of work from bank consulting to uh, new business ventures, oleo devices, these guys up in, up in the Bay Area. Um, and it worked really well for me. And so I was pretty much a one-man band. I was hunting while I was, you know, pursuing while doing uh, type of thing. About two years into that, Beats called. And at the time, Omar <clears throat> Johnson, who was the CMO, uh, ex-Nike guy, uh, as well as a guy named Omari Leggett, who was a, a product dude, had both uh, landed at Beast. Omari called me, let's go out and play a little golf. 
<laughs> I was like, okay, let's go out and play a little golf. And, you know, through, you know, through a few holes, he starts asking me, so what you up to now? You know, that whole chat chat stuff. And I'm, he's like, well, you know, we're looking for a grown-up to help us build a brand team at Beats. You heard of us, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. <laughs> I'm familiar. So this was uh, 2012, 13. And so we, I said, you know, let me think about it. I'm, you know, at the time, I'm feeling myself because I got a client roster and, you know, business is booming. So I'm like, I don't know if I want to be a corporate dude again. You know, I kind of write my own ticket. I wake up when I want. I go to bed when I want. I, you know, I work what I want. Um, but then some of them clients started drying up. Yeah. And I said to myself, okay, let me let, let me reach back out to my man and see what's going on. But the other thing really was about, you know, when you think about what marketing is all about, a lot of it has to do with the camaraderie of a team, group think. Um, you know, a team of folks challenging each other to come up with that best idea. And for me, it was just me, right? So I don't never, you know, tell myself I'm wrong. I'm, everything that I do is okay. Uh-huh. But when you get into that group environment, you get you get challenged, and that pluses up your thinking. Um, so that was part of the motivation, more so than you know, uh, the, the 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 corporate challenges. It's just you know, okay, progressive brand, doing progressive work. Uh, with people that I already kind of know that are, you know, trained Nike marketers, uh, applying some of that that philosophy with Beats. And then Beats was, you know, diverse in terms of their audience. You're talking to music um, fans, you're talking to culture fans, you're talking to art, you're talking to music, I mean, uh, sport. Um, So if I get a chance to actually, you know, build a brand team, probably want to do it there because now I can actually define what marketing means across a few different platforms. I got a little bit of history um, having, you know, had some successes in previous places. So, uh, you know, we took a run at it, you know, fast forward three, almost four years now and uh, I haven't looked back since. (laughs) Take me back to when you were younger, like before college, what made you even decide that you wanted to pursue finance? Like, when you were young, were you always into marketing, branding? Like, did you have that type of passion? You know, it's interesting. Um, for me, school, all the way through high school, really wasn't hard. You know, I played sports and I did well in school, you know, really well. But I did not necessarily build a really good work ethic um, because it came so easy. You yeah. know? So I was running the streets. I was getting good grades and nobody said anything about it. It wasn't until I made a decision to to go to Morehouse where I really realized that, you know, first of all, you got to learn how to work hard. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're going to compete, and the mentors that I kind of accumulated through my freshman and sophomore year uh, years really started to help me think about okay, what are you going to do with your life? Because first of all, I realized you know after my freshman year, I wasn't going to be no pro ball player. <laughs> Uh, wasn't nobody coming to see Morehouse games. <laughs> and you were playing uh, basketball or football? Basketball. Basketball? Yeah. So uh, it be- became really clear to me that I was going to have to find a-, a real job, you know, coming out of college because that wasn't going to be it. You know, sports was going to be something that was more of a hobby and a passion, not a not a, not a a career. Yeah. So, you know, about my sophomore year is when I really started looking seriously at what you know, what's what's going to be my move. And the good thing is, is after I pledged, I obviously built a really good relationship with a lot of bros from Ada chapter, uh, our Ada Omega chapter in, in, in Atlanta. And, you know, I talked to this one guy and he was a finance dude. And I explained to him, you know, I was marching down this path trying to make my decision about marketing versus finance. And he gave me the best advice I've, I've ever had and I still carry to this day. And he said, young bruh, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do in life. You need to be able to sell it. You need to be able to account for it. And you need to be able to tell stories about it. So whatever you do, just know that those are the three things you're going to have to be able to, you know, um, be great at. And so that, to me, translated finance, sales, and marketing, right? I'm going to make sure that I'm going to get a chance to try to build my chops across all three of those things. Coming out of school, I got recruited um, to come back to LA and this was at the time when government subcontracting was a big thing and all that kind of thing so I landed a pretty nice gig working for um, Rockwell of all places they don't even exist anymore Uh but at the time they were working on big contracts for the government so folks were you know making some nice paper 
it was back in L.A., so I didn't have to worry about much because I was living at the crib, you know, and I was just, you know, stacking racks and, you know, uh, going about my merry way. And so finance became, I kind of fell into it more than I actually pursued it. Um, it just was an easy transition for me um, because I'd looked at Coca-Cola at the time in Atlanta yep. and, you know, they had like an associate brand manager type of role. Um, I had gone out to Cargill in the Midwest uh, and did some interviewing with those guys. And, you know, I happened to go like in a February time frame and it's like <laughs> snow, you know, I, so that, I knew that wasn't for me. Um, and being an L.A. dude, it was like, OK, let me just get back to the crib. Um, Everything is going to line up and, you know, I'll figure out it, figure it out from there. So, like I said, I kind of fell into finance more than anything. But all always in the back of my mind, I knew I needed to understand, you know, P&Ls and balance sheets um, and that kind of thing. So I can't say that I had that figured out in high school or any like anything like that. It just literally came to me much later on in my college career. Got it. And so when you made the transition from finance to sales, was there any like fear of like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this work? Or Oh, it was a lot of trepidation, <laughs> a lot of trepidation. So if you can imagine, you know, finances, you know, or any kind of job like that, you know, it's it's the quintessential nine to five ish type of thing. You, you start your day, you end your day, whether you work hard or not, you know, two weeks later, your check is usually the exactly. same. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Um, sales ain't, ain't like that, right? You know, you keep what you kill mm -hmm. and you got to have that mentality. Um, so yeah, it was a little, little interesting making a transition cause it may, it meant taking a pay cut. Um, and I had to really work hard to try to make up that difference in commission, you know, so that meant I had to deliver. Um, so, you know, first out of the gate, obviously there's a lot of enthusiasm and hunger. So I'm on the phones from 7am <laughs> to 7pm, you know, ringing up sales and doing sales calls and closing business and doing really well at it. Um, so I finally did kind of, once I took the dip, but, you know, it turned around pretty significantly. And, you know, I, I found my, you know, my, you know, my stride, if you will, um, you know, gifted with the ability to interact with people and build relationships. And, and that translated into closing business. Um, so, yeah, initially I had a lot of reservations about being able to, you know, make that transition and make ends meet and all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, turned out to be pretty successful at it. So, again, you know, it was one of those second steps for me in trying to live up to what my mentor had told me early on, account for it, sell it and market it. So, so what I'm kind of hearing is this theme, though, of always being able to work hard and like as long as you work hard, you'll be able to figure it out. So where do you think that work ethic comes from? Did you see it in your parents? Does it? Well, you know, like I said, what's interesting is um, it was a gift and a curse at a young age that, you know, school came easy. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know what hard work meant. Uh, you know, you know I, I'm, I'm, I guess, blessed that, you know, I didn't have to go out and, you know, fend for myself as a kid. I got a chance to be a kid. So, again, it wasn't until I actually got a little older and a little bit more mature. Like I said, once I was down in Atlanta and I saw, you know, all right, this is a competitive landscape and, you know, you, you got to actually put in the work. It's not enough to just answer the question. You got to understand how to get from the from the question to the answer. Yeah. And that was where I started to really develop a, a bit of a stronger work ethic. Um, and also being a little bit mature. Um, I got a chance to look back and see, okay, my parents, dad is working two jobs to, to help me, you know, cover college tuition. Mom's is on the grind, you know, so then it started to click, you know, this ain't, you know, uh, this ain't no video game. You know, I don't get a chance to just play my way through life. I got to actually put in some effort. And that's when it started to click for me. And, and what I also realized is that effort reaps benefits, you know, when you show effort, usually you get some type of reward for it, whether that's on a court, on a field, in a gym or in a classroom or for that matter, in a, in a work environment. And it was one of those things where, OK, I'm, I'm seeing the benefits. You know, if I'm working hard, I'm closing business. My checks are getting bigger. Uh -huh. um, you know, and I keep working harder and keep closing business. Checks get even bigger. You know, so there was this that that. Uh, correlation really started to click for me. And now we're talking, you know, eight, 10 years into my career now. So uh, I'm not as gifted as maybe some of the young people who figured this out earlier on in life, but it, it did finally click for me. And, you know, even when I mentor young people today, I tell them, you know, put in the work, 
because that's what you're gonna that's when you're gonna reap those benefits and you're gonna see those rewards. Also, it also it, it starts to help you see what what's out there. Um, the harder you work, the more people recognize you, the more you get a chance to understand what's what's out there on the horizon. So you can start to plan and set your career up the way you want it, as opposed to it being, you know, fate and circumstance and, you know. Yeah, and just going through life. Just aimlessly. going through life aimlessly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So now I want to talk about now you're at T Mobile and you shift from sales to this brand role. Mm-hmm. And this is another transition. When you did that, like, what gave you the confidence that you were going to be able to succeed outside of just, like, working hard is one thing, but then you still have to have the talent behind it, too? Well, yeah. Um, so fast forward, another chapter in life, I had a, a different mentor who really talked to me about this this concept of uh, four tenants. And, you know, it'll make sense when I explain it. Um, you know, we come to this world with and develop over time certain passions and, and talents. You know, you think about somebody that can hoop. They just they just got a gift for it and then they, you know, work at it. They're passionate about it. You know, it kind of pays off. But then there's things that you learn throughout life. That's skill. You, you, you sharpen your skills because you're in a classroom. You sharpen your skills through your experiences. You Those are things that can be taught. Um, and he said that what you want to always search for in your aspirations um, professionally or personally is balance between your passions, your talents, your skills, and your experiences. And if you take um, stock and inventory and ask yourself, what am I passionate about? You know, what does that list look like? Um, what am I, what am, where do my talents lie? What am I just good at, you know, naturally? Um, what kind of skills have I acquired over time? What have I learned, both personally and professionally? And then can you account for all your experiences that make you who you are? And when you think about career uh, goals, when you think about personal goals, use those filters. When that sunk in, I really started using it, like aggressively. I would write, you know, what am I passionate about? And that, that list would change every so often. You know, where my talents lie, that list would change every so often. Um, so fast forward, um, you know, when this, when this opportunity came up, you know, I told myself, well, I, I got book trained in this concept of marketing. Um, I've kind of watched it from afar and I've seen what I thought was great marketing and what I thought was not so great marketing. And I got an opinion. Um, so let's go ahead and put that to work. And what it tested me on is, am I passionate about this as a function? But can I apply my passions to the function? So it's one thing to be a marketer. It's one, another to take what you learn out in the world and pour it into your marketing to help with your storytelling because that gives you authenticity. And that's what I used. It was less classical training and more visceral reaction. And and then, you know, over time, I continued to hone my skills, Yeah. took took inventory of my, all of my experiences to help me continue to, to become a better marketer. Um, and, you know, to this day, I still use those same four tenets as I continue to march my career forward, even as we speak. And you speak a lot about mentors. Has that always been something you've had throughout your life? Yeah, yeah. Good ones and bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had some mentors at a young age that had me out in the streets. Okay. <laughs> um, but I've had some mentors that have really been instrumental in helping me um, develop as an individual, as a human being, uh, both spiritually, uh, professionally, and personally. And, you know, for whoever is going to listen to this, I would say, you know, accumulate your mentors. And those mentors aren't necessarily always the people that are older than you. Uh, mentors can come in all shapes and sizes, uh, all age groups, uh, and all walks of life. And there is something to be gleaned from experiences that others have had that you don't or you have not had. And um, that has proven invaluable uh, because I can say that I can traverse the streets because I've, you know, I, I, like I said, had some mentors that taught me that world. Yeah. Um, but I also know how to, how to matriculate a corporate environment. I also know, um, where I stand spiritually. I also know where I stand, you know, just as a human being, um, because I've had mentors across those different walks of life at different points in time in my life. And these are people that I still talk to to this day. 
And I was just going to ask, do you still, at this point in your career, do you still see the value in having mentors? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even at this at, at this age, um, I know that there's stuff that I don't know. And I know that there's more to, um, to experience, more to learn, um, and actually more value for me to, in exchange, give back. So I feel like I have a responsibility to be a stronger mentor to others because of uh, of what value I see in it. So yeah, like I said, I, I you know I, I accumulate mentors along the way, um, and I keep in contact. And sometimes it could be something as simple as help me solve a problem, uh, or give me some advice, or tell me you know if I'm messing up, yeah, you know, um, and what I might need to do a little differently. And, and then sometimes it's it's really deep, long-standing conversations about some really complex issue. But I don't take any of that for granted because you can find yourself out there trying to figure it out on your own. And you're only as good as what access you have to information. And the more information you have, the more informed you're going to be around the decisions that you make in life. And I, I live by it. Totally agree. I know mentors have always been a big cornerstone in my life. Yep. And like you said, you get some good ones, you get some bad ones. But for the most part, I've been fortunate to have some really good ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the biggest things you learned when you took the experience at Boost in that role? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing is um, you don't market to win awards. You don't market for industry accolades and industry acknowledgement. That comes as a byproduct of the great work that you do. You market to create relationships with who you call your consumer. Um, Brands that have relationships with their consumers, where consumers feel like they have a vested interest in the success of a brand, are more likely to continue to grow and be progressive. And you look at some of the best marketing out there in the universe, whether it's the E-Trade baby, you know, circa yeah. 1990s or what Nike's done over the course of the last 40 or so years or even Apple over the last, you know, 30 or so years. They've created some type of connection because they tapped into the zeitgeist of the consumer's interests. What really is is driving a behavior? And, you know, to this day, you think about it, the, the, those brands have fans that are very passionate about what they do, so much so that they'll they'll speak on on beha- on behalf of that brand, or they will throw darts at those brands when 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 those brands lose their way. You look at Coca Cola when they went away with Classic, and went with that new Coke thing back in the day. Folks were went crazy. They did. Now you're talking about sugar water, and but, <laughs> but the fact is, it wasn't about the product as much as it was about the brand not necessarily listening to its consumers, and and that constituency spoke out. So for me, it's all about finding those connections. And those connections don't come from, you know, searching Wikipedia, right? Those searches come from, you know, I mean, those, those, those deep connections come from being in culture um, and being a part of it and listening and watching and seeing what, what is resonating with the people who you're supposed to be advocating for and what products you develop and what services you, you offer um, and what stories you tell. So it gets down to what I call the the real deep insight. And, and this was taught to me, right? So this is a skill that I learned. This was not something that just came to me naturally. But um, when you get to that real deep insight, now you're talking to the consumer through a lens that they can, first of all, appreciate. Uh, number one, they can um, associate with, you know, and that's that creates a level of enthusiasm. Now you have a connection to the consumer. The consumer now has a connection to your product. And ultimately, when they go and vote at retail, what they're recalling is not this product does X, Y, and Z. They're recalling this brand is cool, and I want to be a part of that organ that that family. Um, and let me find out if what that family offers services a need. Now they now now they're gonna be far more likely to buy, and it's proven to be a model that you can replicate. And you know, again, I've, I haven't looked back since. It's one of those things where that's the way I apply that rigor from my days at Boost, doing street ball games to concerts to surf events, uh, to what I'm even doing to this day. Uh, so now, talk to me about some projects that you've worked on that you were extremely proud of that. Things went great and exactly how you expected. Wow. Um, 
Well, I'll go back to, so, you know, you hear me talk about surf. I'm a 6'4", 220 black man from, <laughs> from the inner city of Los Angeles. So you so surf growing up, right? So I surf growing up. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I had to learn it. And I think what makes me proud is that, you know, I was very humble about getting into that space and trying to be authentic. So before I even started talking about building out a, a, an event for a boost at the time, we did something called Boost Mobile Pro Surf. And it was a upper echelon event for the top surfers around the world, the Kelly Slaters and all that kind of thing. Wow. So before I even took on the role, uh, I asked, is it okay if I can actually just attend some, some events just to understand the, the, the culture and the, the, you know, just everything about it. And when I'm, you know, I learned to surf. I had to learn how to surf. Were you already a strong swimmer? Well, swimming was no problem. It's you know, but swimming in the ocean ain't no joke. <laughs> you know, swimming in a pool at the YMCA is a different. You know, it's, okay, it's a little different. Uh, so you know, a little clumsy to yeah. say the least uh, out of the gate. But one of it, one of the things was just to basically get a, an appreciation, um, and that appreciation earned me the right to be in that space because, you know, like I said, I'm looking across the hall to these world-class surfers from around the world talking about what I think the surf experience should be. Um, I need to be able to say that I've been there and done that. Obviously not at a world-class level, yeah, but that, you know, at, at some basic level that I understand, you know, Whatever. swells and currents and, you know, weather and how weather affects, you know, surf and what's a world-class break and all that kind of thing. Uh, so that's one thing I was really proud of is I was able to learn something that I had no clue about, earn the kind of uh, right to be in that space and actually develop and 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 produce um, some world class surf events. Since then, you know, I've gotten a chance to produce concerts uh, that are you know that have been aired on MTV. Again, I had no clue what it meant to create a concert for television. Had never done it before. But, you know, I dove in head first and just figured it out, figuring out talent writers. And, you know, this guy likes peanut M&Ms and, and velvety <laughs> vodka, you know, I mean, literally going from that level of detail to understanding what a back line needs to look like and sound check. And I mean, I had to learn all of that stuff. And, you know, I ended up producing some award winning concerts in places like Radio City Music Hall, what was the Kodak Theater, now called Adobe Theater. That so, were aired on television. Let me ask, so you talk about learning the small little details, like what type of Eminem someone likes. Uh, did you ever feel like you were at a place or a point with like these small things, like I'm too above that to worry about that. Like I'm only going to fly at 5,000 feet and then everyone else will do the grunt work. Nah, bro. Um, now, one of the things that I am, um, and I came here with this, was uh, attention to detail. You know, pay attention. I don't uh, Just a side note, you know, even, you know, even as a kid, when I used to go school shopping, you know, age seven, eight, nine, I used to go to Sears over on in Inglewood and I paid attention. I wanted to make sure everything matched. And I paid, you know, I looked at the details and I wanted to understand, OK, if you remember Granimals, you, you had to match the dinosaurs. Yeah. In order to make sure that you had your, your fit right. Um, and that's always been, I've been meticulous about that kind of stuff, right? Everything had an order. Everything had a place. And the more you pay attention to the details, the easier the big picture starts to come into focus. Now, that's something that I've always had from a very young age. And I still pull on that. Um, so, yeah, it's important for me to understand. If I want this artist to be excited and inspired, the last thing they want to think about is whether or not I pulled out the chocolate M&Ms from the rest of them or whatever. If that's what they want, let's pay attention to that. You know, when they walk in, do we know that this person likes roses or hydrangeas? Do we know um, what that person's favorite color is? Let's make sure the green room is adorned with that person's color. Um, I mean, all of that kind of stuff is the stuff that makes a difference because then, I mean, like I said, you talk about being inspired, you walk into an environment and somebody's thought about those types of details on your behalf. Yo, they understand me. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to put on the best show possible on the strength. And, you know, the, the concerts are an example of that. But, you know, you fast forward, even the work that I'm doing to this day, uh, circa 2015, I was working on the Straight Outta Compton project with the movie. Um, 
And what we were tasked with doing as a brand, obviously Dre being a, a, a figurehead in the brand, was we had to establish a point of view. Now, keep in mind, Beats by Dre wasn't around during the, the NWA days. But we obviously have lineage because he's a founding father for the brand. So we had to figure out what what um, what we wanted to do. And, you know, I sat with Dre and Cube um, in an interview when they were talking about making the movie. And both of them pulled on a quote that came from Easy talking about why ain't nobody claiming Compton. Um, everybody from Compton's claiming Gardena and claiming Carson and, you know, but Compton's where it's at. And we're going to put Compton on the map. And I thought about that. And um, the insight that came from it is be proud of where you're from. Yeah. Right. And everybody has who they're from woven into who they are. And that led us to what Beat's point of view could be about this was because we, like I said, we wasn't around during the NWA time, but everybody's straight out of somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and and that became, became the insight that helped us build a campaign around not only our point of view, but, um, you know, point of view of millions of people around the world that have, that are from somewhere that have a story to tell. And we just gave them a way to express that. And then they and had that, a connection thing, with it. And yeah. And that thing just took off. Right. So not only was the movie a critical acclaim itself, uh, but there was a logical connection between the movie and us now that made sense. And the consumer took ownership of that straight out of idea and it just it became a trending topic on all of the social um, channels. And we've got awards that came as a result of it. It, it really proud moment for me uh, being the guy that uh, architected that campaign. I didn't so, realize you were the one that architected that. Yeah. I thought it was uh, somebody from the movie side that came nah, over there. No, no, baby. You're looking at him. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm privileged to be in your, <laughs> in your company. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I look at those types of things and I, I call those wins. Um, you know, we decided to do something with rugby around Rugby World Cup. I don't know rugby at all. I do now. Yeah. But at the time when it was, I was tasked with building out the campaign, I didn't have a clue of what a, what a try was and all that kind of stuff. But I went and did my homework and I interviewed people. And I talked to people that are from the culture. And what we ended up with is another deep understanding of, of not only the sport, but also the people who play the sport and those that are fans of the sport. Um, and you're talking about places that are outside of the United States now, right? Yep. You're, you're, you're talking about New Zealand and the all blacks. And now you understand what the haka means and why they do that before every match. Um, Australia, South Africa, you know, places that don't think about American football or baseball for that matter. You know, outside of our little cocoon, there's a whole nother world of people that are that are living through um, the lens of sport. Totally different. Yeah. Um, so I had to go out and do my homework. And, you know, what I came back with is this this um, Rugby World Cup campaign that, again, was left of center. We weren't talking about what's happening on pitch. We were talking about the lifestyle of these athletes and the fans that um, that love these athletes. I'm pretty sure that most people that listen to this won't know who Richie McCaw is. Go look him up. He's the Michael Jordan of of rugby. Oh, wow. Um, he's the only one that's ever won the Rugby World Cup back-to-back. -back. He's obviously recognized around the world as one of the best rugby players ever to play the game. It wasn't until I did my homework that we realized who he was and what he meant to the sport. And he became one of the center um, figures to our campaign. Um, anybody that's seen the haka from, from afar might think it's just this, this fantastic dance that people, that people from New Zealand do. There's a much deeper story to it, you know. It's uh, it has roots that go way back where, you know, the original people from New Zealand built it out to be a way to acknowledge that they are, you know, life is a gift and that we're visitors on this earth and that we belong to the earth and the earth does not belong to us. I mean, really deep stuff. Um, you know, when they do that haka, it's meant, you know, people look at it as intimidating and all that kind of thing. But what it is, is paying homage to the cultural roots of New Zealand, right? Um, it wasn't until I got into the campaign when I understood that. And again, the output is something in the way of storytelling that's far different than just boots and balls and scoring. Now we're getting into cultural relevance that connects, again, that consumer to the sport, to the personality of that sport, to this brand. 
And now I'm relevant in New Zealand. Now I'm relevant in a different way in Paris um, or in, in England or, you know, South America or South, South Africa. Africa. Yeah. Um, where, you know, if I'd gone in there and tried to do what, what some of the other brands do, um, I'm skimming across the top, doing what everybody else would expect of, of me. I do the unexpected. And usually that stuff pays off. Wow. So now I want to look at the other side of it. Tell me about some times when you've worked on things and it didn't go well and it didn't. You didn't have success and how you manage that. <laughs> well, uh, as, as painful it is to admit, there's, there's, there's some of those. Yeah, there's some of those. I don't know how far I'm going to go into them. But <laughs> no, um, you know, we've actually worked on things that didn't pan out um, because we didn't do our homework. We worked on a project or I actually birthed the project, what we call best of. And the whole idea was centered around the music listening experience through our headphones. Again, insightful. And that is, you know, one of Dre's points of view is that people aren't listening to the music the way the artist intended. Right. Yep. What you hear is obviously digitized recordings and all that kind of thing, which is no way a reflection of what actually happens in the studio. His whole point of view was that, you know, the music and the way that our headphones are, are, are um, engineered and programmed are supposed to be as close to what it would sound like in a studio setting. So we went down this path of you deserve better. And the whole point was if you are the guy that gets up at five o'clock in the morning to go on that long run or you're in the gym at six o'clock in the morning or you got this two hour commute to the office and you're listening to your music that you've carefully curated and made these dope ass playlists and so forth and so on and you're listening to you know poor sounding or poor quality headphones you deserve better so in theory that sounds, sounds like great. a pretty dope <laughs> idea right well you know the music and listening experience is very personal and you know folks take that personally and there is not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to listening experience, just like genres of music. Some people like rock, some people like hip-hop, some people like country, some people like classic. doesn't mean that they don't enjoy music. It's just that the types of genres that they enjoy are very different. And uh, the same applies when it comes to you know us versus Bose versus Sennheiser versus any other, anybody else that makes headphones out there. So when you go out into the universe talking about you deserve better and you're making this claim... Um, you got to be prepared for all of the arrows that are going to be shot back at you. Yeah. And unfortunately, we didn't think about that. You know, we didn't think about the fact that any somebody out there would have a different opinion. Uh, we just assumed that the world would see it our way and everybody would be like, yeah, we, I do deserve better. I'm in this gym. I don't need these shitty headphones. I need these dope Beats headphones. Nah, that ain't the case. <laughs> right. I mean, while we've earned a lot of respect as a as a premium headphone company, there's still a lot of people out there that maybe don't even know who we are. Let's let's be real. You know, um, there are parts of the parts of the globe that you know we don't have the same footing that we have in the U.S. or in you know major metropolitan cities in Western Europe and so forth and so on. So that was one of our uh, blind spots that we didn't catch. The other is, like I said, you got folks that have very strong opinions because again, we're a brand that has a point of view. And when you have a point of view, you're going to have folks that are going to opposite be on opposite ends yep. of that point of view. Folks that are going to be advocates and folks that are going to be detractors. Well, we invited the detractor to just fire away at us now. Um, and we weren't prepared for it. So that one didn't go as, as, as well as we would have liked. So what did you learn from that, though, that old experience? Well, again, I, I think it goes back to, you know, continue to do your homework and make sure that you are looking at all the blind spots because they're out there. And when you don't pay attention to them, those are the ones that can trip you up. You know, it's, it's not, the, you know, the, one of the learnings, you know, a runner never trips over a park bench. It's always a crack in the pavement. Yep. So you got to pay attention to the cracks in the pavement. And we didn't. And, you know, we learned a lesson. And, you know, now I pay attention to the cracks in the pavement. <laughs> yeah. um, and now, after that happens, a project like that happens, when you move forward, does it affect, like, the speed in which you move? Or do you just spend, do you work even harder to pay attention to those cracks? Because well, I know... Yeah, it's a combination of both. I mean, first of all, our speed to market never changes. We, you know, when you say you want to be, when you want to move at the speed of culture, you, you can't 
slow down because culture doesn't slow down. So we're not afforded that opportunity. Um, so speed doesn't change, but the attention to detail does. Uh, so I'm much more sensitive to um, consumer sentiment, having gone through that, than maybe I was before. I'm not as arrogant um, as I might have been before because I realize that there are still some flaws and faults that we as a brand have to continue to work on and improve. And, you know, it's okay to acknowledge those. Yeah, you still have to walk with swag. You still have to have a level of confidence. But you also have to realize that, you know, sometimes your shoe does come untied. And, you know, you got to be able to look down and tie it. You can't just walk around and pretend like it doesn't exist. So, you know, we apply that, that same type of rigor. You know, when we're, especially when we're going into spaces that are unknown, we got to make sure. Let's, let's make sure we check the alleyways. You know, like, that's that, that, that street mentality, right? If you're going to go down a dark alley, you got to make sure you understand what, What's on your left and what's on your right? Uh, every now and then you need to check behind you. Uh, there's no different, right? Yeah. You, you have to have that same type of head on a swivel uh, approach when, when we're building out campaigns. And I think for me personally, my lesson learned is don't assume, you know, just because you got a hall pass to the hood doesn't mean that, you know, that you don't need to be, you know, your head don't need to be on a swivel. Um, and that, apply, that applies in, in corporate America, <laughs> yeah. especially in brand marketing. Keep your head on the swivel, see the, identify your blind spots and address them and understand how much of a threat that blind spot can potentially be. So my last part of that question is, how do you not allow those failures to not affect you moving forward, to not even have you question everything that you're doing more than you need to or kind of like depress you and not give you the motivation yeah. Well, first of all, you know, my, I came up playing sports, right? You don't win every game. Yeah. And if you if you let a loss affect you, you would always lose. Right. Um, the same applies. I think every every step that we take, and that's in that's in business and personal or otherwise, you, there are going to be some missteps, but treat them as learning experiences more than just mere failures. And you can't harp on it. If you can't take something from it, however, as a learning experience, then then yeah, you got a problem because then you're gonna usually find yourself falling into the same traps again. But I look at anything where I call it a misstep uh, as an opportunity to learn, uh, to apply those learnings so that I don't make the same mistake again. Every step of the way, especially if you're gonna be progressive about what you do, again, whether that's in in, in your job environment or in your personal life, if you're going to take risk, you understand that part of taking those risks is actually um, running into some blind spots every now and then. Uh, but every time that you progress, you should actually have be aware of what you weren't aware of the, the last time you did it. That's learning. And the, the more you learn, the more you apply your learnings, the more proficient you are at what you do, the more progressive you can become. So it's okay to take risk because you know that I can actually understand a little bit more today than I did yesterday. So I can maybe take a few steps further than I did yesterday. And the work that we do now with, uh, with you know, if you, again, if you take, out, take a look at Be Heard, you know, we went somewhere that, again, we've never been before. But we applied what we've learned over the course of a lot of the work that we've done to make sure that we've paid attention. Now, granted, there may be some blind spot that'll come out of this yeah. that we'll have to pick up on. Um, and when I come back with my next campaign, you know, three, six months from now, whatever the case may be, I'll apply those learnings. So I don't ever look at, you know, failure as this thing that, you know, is going to be a hindrance to my, my, my progress. I look at it as something I sure better have learned from and that I should be able to pull on when I move. Um, and... You know, it's, I, I guess I just look at it that way. Not, I'm not trying to be overly cock confident or, you know, or cocky about it, but, you know, I'm, I'm, that kind of stuff is not going to stop me. I love it. So you've worked on these campaigns that, I mean, from the LeBron campaign when he went back to Cleveland, which I mm -hmm. thought was beautiful, yeah, to yeah. you speak about the Be Her campaign. The campaign with the with the rugby players. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What continues to keep you inspired? Well, I think it's it's culture itself, right? It, there's so much that we don't know um, about global culture, and a lot of us that you know 
or here from the states, or for that matter, any in anywhere, um, you know, you you're aware that culture is happening around you. I think it's just about understanding: Do you have a point of view about it? And that's in, that's again in general. Um, as I look out, I could probably tell you every cultural moment that is relevant around the world because we've done our homework. But that's that's I mean that's so much that's so vast. There's no way that we can actually put our fingerprints on on a tenth of it. So we have to spend time looking at it and finding out okay how relevant is it for our brand? Can we establish a point of view? Where does music play a role in it, perhaps, or not? And can we insert ourselves into that cultural narrative and be relevant? And and again, have a, a unique point of view that's left or right of center that a, a consumer can appreciate. That work is never done because there's always something new, right? We spend our time tirelessly doing our homework, trying to figure out what's 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 the next what's the next thing, and and not the next thing for the sake of the next thing, but what's out there happening that we just haven't necessarily gotten to yet. Cricket, for example, right? Okay, so there's there's American football, American sports. There's global football we call soccer. There's rugby, but there's this phenomenon called cricket that yep. is, I mean, you're talking about brand passionate advocates and fans. We just haven't figured out how to get there yet. It's not that it's not culturally relevant. Um, so, I mean, I'd use that as an example. We might actually explore that, um, especially as we grow our business to be relevant in the south, southern part of the hemisphere called EMEA, right? You know, you get northern Africa and and you know Middle East and all kind of areas where we haven't necessarily really gotten into yet. There's you know there's the the the, the world of fashion. There's the the world of music. Yeah. You know, even of itself, the world of music is not confined to just the U.S. and Western Europe. You know, there's there's K-pop and there's C-pop and there's I mean there's all these different uh, spaces, nooks and crannies that we haven't necessarily gotten deep into yet. So there's so much out there on the horizon for us. You know, it's like a never ending journey for us to kind of figure out what the next thing is, which is exciting because every, every one of those represents a learning moment for us. And, and again, if you, if you want to be an arbiter of culture, personally or professionally, you have to do that kind of homework and you have to realize that you're never going to have a finish line. Because yeah. it's always going to be something new out there, and that's I think what keeps us um, enthusiastic about the what's on the horizon for the brand. And then, your, where does your deep interest of being relevant and part of culture come from? Like you grew up playing basketball in LA, but yeah. what gave you the exposure to just be like, I want to be, I want to learn about surfing, I want to learn about rugby, and all these other things. Part of it is because you understand that there are people out there that have these deep passions about it themselves, and. You want to be curious about why. why. Why is that such a big deal? You know, what's the big deal about getting on a surfboard and pedaling out and waiting for a wave to come and taking it? I mean, it's a surreal experience. And now I understand that. Um, I probably would not have yeah. had I not uh, gotten a chance to experience it. You know, my, my fascination for culture, you know, or however that's defined, is a function of watching and seeing people and how they gravitate towards things that they're passionate about. You heard me talk about earlier, you know, passion, talent, skill, and experience. I have my own passions, but those are just limited to what I personally have experienced. But that, you know, that that doesn't mean that there's something that you're passionate about that I don't know anything about yet. And I would want to understand why. Photography, what, why? Why is that such a big deal for you? Let me understand it more. And now I'm going to go out and get me a camera, and I'm going to figure out what is the fascination. And that list is long. So it's about being curious, I think, is what it really boils down to. If you stay curious about what other people are passionate about, you get a chance to learn so much, not only about the individuals, but about the world around us. And it helps to round you out as an individual because yeah. my point of view ain't the only point of view. There's six, six point nine 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 billion other people <laughs> walking this earth with that many different points of view. And... To assume that everybody's going to see things through my lens is a poor assumption. Uh, so if I stay curious and I stay aware, there's probably something out there that I can I can understand and learn. But have you have you always been curious? Like when you were a young kid, 
Were you the curious kid, always asking your parents a million questions, always trying to learn more, like, through middle school, elementary, were you always that curious kid, or is that something that developed in you? Nah, that's something that came over time, you know, <laughs> uh, that came over time. I, I you know, I was, I, I, like I said, as a kid, I was just a kid, you know, I didn't necessarily have tremendous fascinations, I didn't have the most vivid of imaginations, um, what I what I encountered around me is what I knew. And it was enough to keep me busy, obviously. But I didn't necessarily start to understand anything about, let alone the United States, about the world until I actually started to travel and see what what else was out there. Even when you go on a family vacation, right? You're confined and insular to whatever your mom and dad let you do, right? You know, when I first, you know, my first time away from home was Atlanta for undergrad. That was the first time I was on my own. And now, okay, hold on a minute. I get a chance to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Let me see what that's all about. And then when I traveled for work, the first time I actually traveled abroad that wasn't a vacation, a family vacation, was for work. And I went to China, of all places. Um, And then Australia. And then Western Europe and, you know, um, South South America. You know, so you get a chance to see places and the more you see, the, the, the more you realize how little you understand. Yeah. And that's where curiosity started to kick in for me, again, much later in life. Call me a late bloomer, period. Right? <laughs> everything, about, <laughs> everything about me today is something that's come, you know, call it over the last two decades. Um, and, you know, I think that's where, where that's come from. It wasn't something that I came here with. Wow. It's so interesting. Like... The parallels, as you tell your story, the things you say, just the parallels I have with your story. Mm -hmm. Before I ask my last couple of questions, I just want to thank you for your time again and for continuing to inspire me, for continuing to produce just amazing content that I connect with and that I know millions of other people connect with. It's good to hear. It's good to hear. It's just an honor to have you here for this, <laughs> for this project. No, and I'm very serious. Like, I am really honored because I know how hard you guys work over at Beats and how much time and dedication that you guys give to that organization. And so for you to take the time today to speak with me, I truly appreciate it. Oh, it's all love. So, and, and so now I want to talk about balance. So I know at Beach you guys work tirelessly. Like you're always traveling, and then even when you're in town, like it is always on the go because you want to be connected to culture. Mm-hmm. How do you find balance, or do you find balance in your life? Well, for me, balance has been um, has taken on different definitions. Right, early, early, much earlier in my career, you know, I forced it because I had young children and I needed to, you know. Be be as much a parent of a father, uh, you know, and all that kind of thing. So I forced it, you know. And, and those two don't necessarily mix, you know, work and work and family. Right? Yeah. Uh, now that my kids are grown and all that kind of thing, balance for me literally is about being able to have a conversation on a Saturday morning like this about something that I did on Thursday of last week. Balance for me is about taking something that I did Thursday and then pouring it into the work that I do on Friday morning because of some experience that I had. Um, And that's where there's this blend of work and life because um, I don't have a nine to five job. You know, neither are, neither do my bosses, right? I don't think Jimmy ever had, Jimmy Iovine ever had a nine to five job. Uh, That's not how he lives his life. He lives his life through the lens of his passion. And one of those things is is beats, and one of those things is Apple Music, and one of those things is music creation and music production. There's no begin or end to any of that kind of stuff. You know, there's no clock you punch to start, and there's no clock you punch to stop. It's always on. Um, and so while I'm not nearly the creative genius and probably will never be that he is, I do understand that an idea doesn't just manifests itself between the hours of nine and five. Uh, a creative thought doesn't just come to you at, you know, at coffee um, between meetings. Uh, it comes anytime. Inspiration comes from anywhere. And so for balance for me is, is literally about how do I weave the two things together? 
or those four things together, going yeah. back to what I said earlier, passions, talent, skill, and experience. If I can weave those things together, then the lines get really blurred between what's work and what's play and what's 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 business and what's pleasure. You know, um, I, I told you I just came from New York and, you know, it was a painful process to put on this, this project for Alexander Wang and this collaboration, but it was it was a labor of love. Uh, and the and the output was this incredible event that everybody's talking about and um you know I hopped on a plane and came right back here and now I'm starting to work on something called All-Star Weekend and Grammys <laughs> and Oscars and and we got holiday but it, it's all woven together so i you know balance for me is i guess relative yeah, and you know different people look at things differently and i think it's also what stage i'm at in terms of my career it, it, like I said, it was a lot different, you know, 20 some odd years ago when I had, you know, young toddlers and children and school and parent teacher conferences and all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't have that anymore. Yeah. So uh, my time is actually mine, which is also part of it. But, you know, if you're curious and you and you're an idea guy and you're a, and you're a thinker, you know, that that stuff doesn't have a beginning and end. It's you're always on. Um, and, and if that's the case, then, you know, balance is what you make it. Nice. And then my last question, what, and I know you have your, the four pillars, are those the principles that you live by? Like, and if they are, what other advice would you give to people that want to find their passion and weave that in with the other pillars? Mm -hmm. Well, um, yes, they are. Though they, I continually talk about them. Um, when anytime I'm mentoring, I always bring them up uh, because I'm a believer, right? If you haven't explored your passions, if you haven't necessarily capitalized on your talents, if you're not building your skill sets and you're not taking inventory of your experiences, what are you doing, right? At the end of the day, those are the four things, right? Yeah. That's what gets you up in the morning. That's what motivates you. Um, that's how you make your money. I mean, you know, if you if you really just boil it down, it's probably going to fall into one of those four buckets. So use them. Uh, the other that I use and I, you know, I challenge myself on is this idea of think two and take one. Um, and that is how you manage your progression. Right. If you only look at the very next step you take, you don't know what the next step is that has to happen after that. You need to at least think two steps ahead. And thinking two steps ahead helps you to make sure that that first one is very carefully thought through. And when it's carefully thought through, that sets you up for the next step. And then you take think two and take one, think two and take one. That's That, that for me is progress. So not only do I use those four tenets that, that, that I've spoken of over the course of this conversation, um, I also always think about, okay, what's, what's, what's two steps from here? From right now, what is two steps for me from here? And what one step do I need to take to get me closer to that second step? And then I start all over again. What's two steps from there? And then I start all over again. And what that meant for me is that my career has always been progressive. Um, my my personal life has always been progressive. Um, my my curiosity has always been progressive. Everything about what, you know, at least I think, uh, what makes me who I am has always been about progress. And, and, you know, again, it's worked for me. Whether or not anybody else out there can apply it and, and see logic in it, that's up to them. But it's worked for me. So if you don't mind sharing, what are your next two steps? <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I guess at this point in my career, to be quite frank, uh, two steps for me is retirement. Oh, wow. Two steps for me is about doing something that truly is just about passions, not necessarily pulling on experiences or skills or, or talents, quite frankly. It's about doing something I truly am passionate about. Um, and I am now, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, there's a point where it's like, okay, I, I want to be able to do it at my leisure, let's yeah. put it that way. So, yeah, two steps for me is, is that's, that's one direction. Uh, two steps for me also could be, you know, um, running a business, literally, um, being a captain of industry. Uh, I've always thought about whether or not I have the chops to, to take on that kind of responsibility. And I'm challenging myself right now to ask myself, am I, am I, am I built for that? Can I be a president of a company? Can I be a, you know, uh, a chief fill in the blank? 
And so I'm asking myself that question. So those are, you know, very two, two, two very different <laughs> paths. But at this stage in my career, I have that left. You know, um, you know, I'm gonna. It's gonna be one or the other. That's the other thing about life is there's there's what I call forced balance. It, yeah. it, it's gonna happen one way or the other. It's just a matter of how much in control I'm gonna be of whatever that destiny is. Um, so I'm my one step right now is about trying to establish. What what that if I go vector left or vector right, what what might that look like? Um, and I you know I spend a lot of time uh, in my quiet time actually playing that out in my head. Wow! Well, just knowing you, I know whatever step is going to be, you'll be successful at it. <laughs> like, whether it is running a business and being the COO CEO. I'm sure that businesses would do amazing. Or whether it's retiring, I'm sure that side of your life is going to be amazing too. <laughs> yeah, well, that, 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 that second one better, sure better be. Yeah, that, I'm working on that. I get my golf game right. <laughs> well, thank you again. And um, I'm just really excited to have had you here today. You got it, man. My pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please share it with your community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat, and write a review on iTunes. My goal is to inspire and help as many people as possible. And by you sharing, we will be able to do this together. You can also shoot me an email if you have any suggestions. Thank you for your time.